Well, thank you, Ollie, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all here today. Would you turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 952. As you know, we are working our way through the first four chapters of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Two weeks ago, Jim Crooks gave us an overview of the letter. Last week, Stephen Shaw described how that over time, divisions and factions had developed among these Corinthian believers. They had divided into a number of partisan groups centered on a cult of personality, and each group displayed pride, jealousy, and boastfulness. And this problem of disunity is one of the issues which Paul addresses in his letter. In verses 10 to 17 of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, Paul has summarized what he has learned about these divisions. And now beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1 and continuing to the end of verse 5 in chapter 2, he sets out his response. His strategy is to remind the Corinthians of the message he preached to them about the cross of Christ. This is the passage we have to consider this morning under the title, The Wisdom of the Cross. On Thursday of this week, I spent a very happy 30 minutes in the dentist's chair having a wisdom tooth extracted And I thought of today's subject, the wisdom of the cross, and I thought that is irony. But as we study this passage, you will see that it breaks down very obviously into three distinct parts. Firstly, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Then chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 and then chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. But before we begin to look at each section in turn, we should refer again to verse 17, because this verse links what Paul has been saying with what he is about to say. And so in verse 17, Paul affirms that his mission was to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And here we have the introduction of two key elements. On the one hand, wisdom, and on the other, power. This twofold theme of wisdom and power is at the core of the three sections we are going to consider. 
as Paul distinguishes God's wisdom from man's wisdom, and as he shows the difference between divine power and human power, and the contrast between God's wisdom and God's power on the one hand, and man's wisdom and man's power on the other, is displayed in the message of the gospel, in the preaching of Christ crucified. In the first section, verses 18 to 25, he illustrates this contrast by reference to the message itself. In the next section, verses 26 to 31, he illustrates the contrast by reference to the Corinthians themselves. And in the final section, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, he illustrates the contrast by reference to Paul himself. And so with that framework in mind, let's read chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Bearing in mind the title of this address, the wisdom of the cross. We can say from these verses that the wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its message. Paul opens the section with these words, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Here we have two diametrically opposed responses to the message of the gospel. Over the last decade or so, in the political sphere, we have had some experience of a referenda. In 2014, we had the referendum on Scottish independence. And in 2016, we had the Brexit referendum. And in this part of the world, the possibility of a referendum on a united Ireland is never far from the political agenda. 
We know very well that referenda can be divisive. They set friend against friend, neighbour against neighbour, family member against family member. The choice presented to the electorate is binary. You either choose this side or that side. There is no middle ground, no fence to sit on. The gospel is a bit like a referendum. It polarises its audience. It presents us listeners with a choice between the wisdom and power of the world on the one hand and the foolishness and weakness of the message on the other. And here in the city of Corinth we have two opposing camps. We have those who regard the message of the cross as foolishness and reject it. We might refer to them as the no camp. And we have those who have believed the message and accepted it. We might call them the yes camp. And in the no camp, Paul picks out two particular groups, the Jews and the Greeks. While both groups rejected the message of the cross, they did so for different reasons. Verse 22 tells us, that the Jews demand miraculous signs. And as you read through the Gospels, you see this demand for signs time and time again. Take, for example, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. In Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. In Mark's Gospel, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And in John's Gospel, then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Derek Tidball comments on this insightfully. What fed their appetite for the sensational and the miraculous was a wrong understanding of God. The Jews believed that if God were to visit his world in salvation, it would be in power. He would come to evict the Romans from their land and give them back their freedom. The word of the cross did not come within a million miles of conforming to such expectations. It spoke of weakness not power, of defeat, not victory, of humiliation, not conquest. This demand by the Jews for miraculous signs continued right to the very end of the Lord's life, even as he hung on the cross. Back to Matthew's Gospel, 
chapter 27. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, saying, Come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. And in the following verses, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Mark puts it this way, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And Luke says, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. And so the Jews demand miraculous signs. Then verse 23 tells us that to the Jews, the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. The word translated stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, from which we derive the word scandal. And to the Jewish mind, the term Christ crucified was exactly that, a scandal an affront. The idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. As D.A. Carson puts it, like frozen steam or hateful love or upward decline. Not only was it a contradiction in terms, but it bordered on the blasphemous. Does not Deuteronomy 21, 23 say, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse? So to the Jews, the message of a crucified Christ was a double affront. It did not meet their expectations, either politically or religiously. But what of the other group in the no camp? The Greeks. Again, verse 22 tells us that Greeks look for wisdom. The Greeks sought to know God by rational argument, by reason. The search for wisdom dominated their thinking. And if the Jews wanted Christ to meet their criteria of power, so the Greeks wanted him to measure up to their intellectual criteria. But Paul teaches that any attempt to know God by the use of reason alone is doomed to failure. And he can ask rhetorically in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? In the same verse he asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. And in verse 21, he declares that the world, through its wisdom, did not, and possibly he could have added, could not know him. The Greeks could not conceive of a God involved directly in human affairs. The incarnation was an impossibility. And to suggest that this Jesus who had suffered and died on the cross 
was the Son of God, and that he had been raised from the dead, was absurd. That is why in verse 23 Paul says that the preaching of Christ crucified is foolishness to Gentiles. Paul often uses the terms Greek and Gentile interchangeably, and he does so here. And there will be a vivid example of this response in Paul's lifetime. Described in Acts 26 when Paul stands before the Roman governor, Festus. And as Paul testifies before the court, Festus interrupts his testimony with the words, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. To Festus, a Gentile, the message of the cross was nothing other than a message of foolishness. So Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But, says Paul in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And the preaching of Christ crucified, while it may be a stumbling block or a scandal to Jews, and while it may be foolishness to Greeks or Gentiles, in the words of verse 24, to those whom God has called, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power and the wisdom of God because in the cross of Christ, God deals with the egotism and the self-centeredness of human nature. To quote Derek Tidball again, while the world functions on the basis of self-centeredness, God functions on the alternative basis of self-denial. He surrenders himself to folly and weakness, and in so doing establishes his real wisdom and demonstrates his mighty authority. The cross of Christ displays a reversal of the world's values about status and success, about self-achievement and boasting. It confounds all human wisdom and it redefines wisdom in a new and paradoxical way. And in the cross, the words of Isaiah 29, 14, quoted by Paul in verse 19, are fulfilled. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. And it is in the cross of Christ that the wisdom of God is displayed in apparent foolishness. And the power of God is manifested in apparent weakness. Verse 25 is a summary of what Paul has been saying. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So the wisdom of the cross 
is seen in the weakness or apparent weakness of its message. Let's now turn to the second section, beginning at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. From these verses, we can see that the wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its converts. Remember that Paul is arguing that the Christians at Corinth should not express their faith by referring to human wisdom and achievement. And in furtherance of that argument, he now points to the composition of the church. Verse 26, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. For the most part, the Corinthian Christians were politically and socially insignificant. They weren't noted for their superior intellect. They came from the lower classes. In short, they were non-entities. They were nobodies. Yet, these were the people God had called. Paul has already reminded the Corinthians of their calling earlier in the chapter. In verse 2, he refers to the church of God in Corinth called to be holy. And in verse 7, he reminds them, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son is faithful. Now in a series of contrasts, Paul underscores how that God has worked in the Corinthians in a way that is contrary to the accepted norms of power and wisdom. Over the last few weeks, I have come to love these next two verses. 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God did not call them because they were influential or wise by human standards. They were quite the opposite so why then 
Would they want to divide into factions in the church for reasons to do with social status and self-achievement? To do so would be completely contrary to the message of the cross. It would be a denial of everything that God had done for them through the death of his son. Remember Paul's appeal in verse 10 of chapter 1. That there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The answer to that wish is to be found in the truth of verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. True wisdom is not to be found through reason or intellect. It is found in Christ. He is our wisdom. A wisdom through which we have righteousness, holiness and redemption. And if there is to be any boasting, Paul rounds off the section by quoting again from the Old Testament. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That is a fragment from a prophecy of Jeremiah. And it's worthwhile looking at the larger portion from which the fragment is taken. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength. There we have wisdom and power. Or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Isaac Watts was inspired to incorporate this thought of boasting in his great hymn, the hymn which we sang just a few minutes ago. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. And so the wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its message. The wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its converts. And now we turn to the final section, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching 
were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now Paul turns the spotlight on himself. From these verses we learn that the wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its preacher. If the Corinthian converts were weak and of no consequence, so too was Paul, especially in a culture where oratory and rhetoric were highly regarded. Apparently Paul was not much to look at, nor does he appear to have been a particularly good speaker. In the, ver- in the words of verse 1, his proclamation of the gospel was not marked by eloquence or superior wisdom. As verse 4 puts it, his message and his preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. This was in sharp contrast to the dazzling oratory of the philosophers. Compared to their self-confidence, Paul came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Therefore, when Paul's preaching was blessed with some of the Corinthians turning to Christ, the explanation could not possibly be due to Paul's natural abilities. It was instead a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Hudson Taylor once famously said, all God's giants have been weak people. The weakness of the cross is seen in the weakness of its preacher. And so Paul rounds off this threefold examination of the wisdom of the cross. And he ends where he began, with wisdom and power. Remember verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. And so the wisdom of the cross is seen in the weakness of its message It is seen in the weakness of its converts. It is seen in the weakness of its preacher. It would be difficult to improve on John Stott's summary of these verses. God chose a weak instrument, Paul, to bring a weak message to weak people. But through this triple weakness, the power of God was, and still is, 
displayed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time spent looking at and listening to your word. We thank you for the freedom to do that. And we thank you for the unfathomable profound wisdom of the cross. And we thank you for those of us who know Christ as Saviour for the fact that he is our wisdom because through him we can know you. We thank you for our time together in his name. Amen.